Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Dorian Linsky. On this week's show, stories of corruption in government are spreading out from David Cameron and Greensill to encompass Matt Hancock and senior members of the civil service. Can the government contain this or will financial scandals do to Boris Johnson what sex scandals couldn't? Special guest David Aronovich of The Times is here to help us make sense of the mess. Plus, as the US finally pulls its troops out of Afghanistan, what does the apparent end of America's longest war tell us about Joe Biden's foreign policy vision? And the incendiary new movie, Promising Young Woman, starring Carrie Mulligan. Is this story of sexual abuse and revenge the first major Me Too movie? And does it work? All that and more on today's bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. First up, it's Atlantic staff writer Yasmin Sahan. Hi, Yasmin. Hi. So in America, Democratic senators are about to introduce a bill to expand the Supreme Court from nine to 13 seats in an effort to break the court's conservative majority. But President Biden has so far only appointed a weirdly enormous panel of experts to look into possible reforms. So is this bill likely to go anywhere or is it just a statement of intent from a few senators? Yeah, it's so, I mean, it's kind of worth, I guess, backtracking to say that this issue gained a lot of traction during the election, during which progressives were basically making this argument. The only way to restore the court's legitimacy was to rebalance it from the conservative shift that we saw under Trump. You'll recall that Trump got to appoint not one, not two, but three justices to the Supreme Court. So at present, the I think the makeup is six conservative, three progressive. I don't think it's likely, but you know, I, I think it's certainly an interesting subject that should be explored. I mean, it would be a pretty seismic change. It would change the makeup of the court for the first time in, I want to say, more than 150 years. Um, the court has been at nine members since the end of the Civil War. Um, Biden himself, crucially, hasn't taken a position on the issue. I think he's waiting for that commission to report back to him, and they have about six months to do so. But we also haven't seen a lot of senior um, Democrats like Nancy Pelosi really take a stand on this either. So, um, you know, I think even with Democrats having control of Congress, it would be a pretty big lift. We'll see. But it has been done before. I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, I think it used to be uh, six mem- six justices before it was increased to nine. Um, and it, it constitutionally, it's something that can be done. But whether it's likely, I, I don't personally think so. And one issue that could make it the Supreme Court is Georgia's hugely controversial new voting rights laws. And there are similar laws um, going through legislatures uh, in numerous states. How bad are Georgia's? I mean, they're pretty bad. I mean, in the sense that, you know, I mean, effectively what it is, is trying to make voting harder. Um, And it all stems from this effectively what was a lie was was a falsehood um, from the last election about, you know, widespread voter fraud that President, uh, form, now former President Trump um, kept talking about. But effectively, what these restrictions do is, you know, they they do things like make, um, there are more rigid voter identification requirements to, to get absentee ballots. Um, they've limited the number of drop boxes. So these are things that you know, people could go to to drop off their ballots um, instead of, you know, allowing them to be at easily accessible places like libraries or, you know, more local government buildings. They now have to be um, in particular sites. Probably the most obscene thing that they do is, you know, they make it a crime to offer food and water to, to voters waiting in line. And, you know, the biggest concern um, among opponents of, of this move is that, you know, this is going to hit voters of color in particular. You know, we know that this is the case in Georgia, but it's a, in the case across the country that, you know, many of the communities that have some of the longest voting lines, waiting hours to vote, are often in black and brown communities. 
you have to, it's worth remembering, kind of putting in the context that it was Georgia's large black population that was crucial to delivering Biden's victory in the state in November, as well as the successive wins of the Democratic senators, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. So, um, you know, there are lawsuits that are already being filed challenging this. A number of companies, Delta Airlines, uh, Coca-Cola, American Express, they've all come out against this too. Also joining us, we have the former Foreign Office diplomat, Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Dorian. Um, Alexei Navalny, who we've talked about uh, quite a lot before, uh, appears to be at death's door this week. Um, and Russia is simultaneously embroiled in tit-for-tat diplomat expulsions with the Czech Republic over claims that Russian agents were responsible for the explosion of an ammunition warehouse in 2014 uh, related to the conflict in Ukraine. Is Putin seeking confrontation at the moment or is confrontation coming to him? I think it's a bit of both. Obviously, the Czech issue is a historic one, but it's come to light in recent days. But Navalny's situation is right now and extremely serious, and maybe he only has a few days to live. There has been a fairly inadequate response by the international community. Lots of talk about if he is to die, then the following things will happen, which seems to be uh, the definition of um, shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted. And of course, the backdrop to all of this is a huge, unprecedented build-up of troops around uh, Ukraine's borders. So that there, there is this upping of the tension which, which Putin specialises in. Um, and so what's the, what's the thinking behind this build-up of troops? I said on an earlier edition of the bunker that I, I thought that this was still Putin trying to sort of get the attention, particularly of the new Biden regime, and they've offered him a a sort of president-to-president summit, which is, of course, what he wants. Putin wants to be taken seriously at the top level internationally. I still hold to that view, but it is very much the case that the build-up of troops looks extremely serious. And so there are people saying this is more than just a show of force. This is what you do when you're planning to mount an invasion. But I don't think anyone really knows. We're delighted to be joined this week by Times columnist, author and self-proclaimed hardline centrist, or at least he owns one of our mugs. Uh, they're not legally binding. Uh, David Aronovich. Hello, David. Welcome to the bunker. I do. It's sitting on my windowsill, actually. And the, uh, and the evening light is beginning to stream over and a very good mug it is, too. But um, I mean, of course, you don't have to let uh, crockery define you politically. I think it's best to. I mean, otherwise... <laughs> Other, otherwise, other things will define you and they're bound to be worse. Let the crockery do it. <laughs> Shortly before recording, excitingly, Keir Starmer clashed with a COVID-denying pub landlord in Bath. Is this his Gillian Duffy moment, as some people are saying, or does it actually make him seem quite good for calling him out uh, when he gets a graph waved in his face? I'm really sorry, but I only just saw a little bit of this on Twitter. And as far as I could see, um, various broadcasters were trying to make a lot more of it than it was worth. And what I think the public sees is just an incredibly rude man behaving rudely towards a politician. I don't think they see anything else. Uh, But for some reason, although it is actually a kind of contingent likelihood for any politician going out in the street that somebody will shout at them, we appear to be astonished every single time it happens, which I don't pretend to understand. But it has something to do with how our kind of political correspondents are involved in the business of massive overinterpretation of any single event at any given time, as they are of, of any single poll. I think it is of no significance whatsoever. Terribly sorry. Well, no, that's good. That will be good news for um, that will be good news for Keir Starmer. Not for not for the publican, by the way, whose pub I think most people wouldn't want to go anywhere close to. No, but he did have. Uh, but you know, maybe he'll just wave his uh, graph from Toby Young's lockdown skeptic site in their face until they relent and order a pint of yeah. ale. 
Well, hands up all those of you who want to go drinking exclusively with Toby Young and his mates. <laughs> Toby Young and his mates, which of course is a fictional construct. Firstly, Democracy has gone into overdrive with the story of former worst PM and possibly worst ex-PM David Cameron and his lobbying for Greensill Capital. Uh, David, can you, I mean, all these kind of scandals can get quite complicated. Can you explain this one in a nutshell and, and, and why it is bad for Cameron? Well, essentially, uh, David Cameron went to work for a guy who not long before had been sort of working for him in Downing Street, although wasn't actually his protégé, Lex Greensill, the Aussie banker. Originally, Lex Greensill was the protégé of Sir Jeremy Haywood, who who was a leading civil servant who died fairly recently of cancer, who was obviously one of these people who was absolutely indispensable to people inside Number 10. He was one of these kind of characters who just seemed to know always what to do. And of course, that's very useful for a prime ministers, particularly those who never seem to know what to do. Um, so Jeremy Hayward was very important. And he he had a kind of, this Lex Greensill had sold him a very good wheeze, which is in many ways quite a necessary wheeze, which was the way to uh, give money to people uh, who you owe money to without uh, delaying, because small businesses are always having delayed on their payments, is to have a kind of middle person who gives them the money immediately, and then everybody then pays them back in some way, and they take a small fee. Uh, supply chain finance. And this kind of concept has been around for a while. And Lex Greensill was trying to sell it hard into, into government. And David Cameron fronted an event at which this was done for pharmacies um, who are doing prescriptions, etc. But otherwise said he only met Greensill a couple of times. But Greensill got a desk in number 10 and a business card and then the name Crown Representative, which was a function brought in for business people to work closely uh, with government uh, in, in, I think, 2013. Okay, so there's David Cameron, there's Lex Greensill, hardly knows Lex Greensill. David Cameron loses the referendum, departs in 2016. Greensill is still a kind of Crown representative, but still departs number 10 shortly thereafter, has his own uh, organisation, Greensill Capital, which a little time after that gets the contract for the pharmacies off Citigroup, uh, who, who had it initially. Right. Then... Just after the period has expired under which ACOBA, the body that looks at business appointments for people, would, might might have been interested in the two-year period, Cameron takes a job at Greensill Capital and say, as an advisor, saying and in his statement he gave recently, I was only working 25 days a year. That's what he says on the one hand. On the second, I was incredibly interested in this idea, very keen about it. And it's never quite clear which of those is really true. I mean, if you're really keen on it, why are you only doing 25 days a year? Or maybe for David Cameron, 25 days a year represents the kind of pinnacle of commitment. Um, I'm not entirely sure, and nobody's entirely sure, because of that kind of insouciant quality he's always had about him, which some people maliciously associate with him being a public school toff. Uh, so anyway, he goes to work for Greensill. Greensill seems to be doing fairly well. It's doing great business. It's organising more and more of these payments for various uh, supply chain finance organized uh, operations, some of them involving now very big money. Come the pandemic, it all begins to go pear-shaped. Cameron is obviously told by Greensill, look, we're in a bit of a trouble here. We need a whole lot of kind of finance fairly quickly. Can you, etc.?" And David Cameron says, yes, I'll, no, no problem. I'll text Rishi Sunak. Text Rishi Sunak, then starts lobbying the Treasury like mad for uh, payments out of the various fu- loans, out of the various funds that the government has organised to tide people through. And this is what 
eventually goes public. Um, uh, that David Cameron has done this. Rishi Sunak, in an act of kind of preemptive brilliance, issues the texts that he has sent before somebody else can find them and issue them for him, which would have been much, much more embarrassing. And that's the first stage. That's the first stage. The next stage is we then discover that senior civil servants who have been working in number 10 at that time one at least, had been working simultaneously for Greensill Capital while he was actually working in the Cabinet Office and had worked out a wheeze with the Cabinet Office to avoid detection by this body, ACOBA, by saying, and this is the bit that really does your head in, actually, because he was allowed to work, probably wrongly, for Greensill Capital while he was still a civil servant, he then didn't have to obey the two-year rule about a new appointment to Greensill because it wasn't a new appointment because he'd already been working for them. Okay? Have you got that one? I mean, and that, I think that at this point, people actually begin to think, you know, this is really bad. And then come a whole series of other uh, revelations about other various people with connections with Greensill Capital. Now, the important thing is that at this point, as, as well at this moment, no one has done anything wrong in the sense of having broken a regulation, uh, gone against a guideline, broken a law, etc. They all say there's been no wrongdoing. And yet we all know, looking at that, it feels bad. It feels bad from beginning to end. And what this reminds me of is the phone hacking business. Younger people may not know this, but for quite a long time, phone hacking was not illegal. Um, it wasn't illegal. It didn't start off by being illegal. It was perfectly legal at the beginning to hack people's phones to get stories off it. It was just immoral. Uh, that was the problem. And then it was gradually made illegal. It didn't become more or less moral because it became more illegal. It was never moral. And that's the problem with this. This doesn't look good because it isn't good. And if it is, doesn't match the regulations, then the regulations are the problem. And that's where I, pretty much we've got to. And has this been a, a sort of therefore a problem for quite some time? This is something that just sort of brings it to the surface, the idea that actually the regulations we have on the kind of uh, other jobs MPs and civil servants can do after power, and in some cases while they are still in office, have just been a mess for, for ages. Well, the whole thing's a mess. The House of Lords, for instance, is a complete mess. How do you get to be in the House of Lords? There's a House of Lords Appointments Committee. But despite the House of Lords itself agreeing that it should be made smaller, successive Conservative governments have made it bigger and bigger and bigger by putting people in to try and overcome whatever they thought it was deficient of in the first place. Apparently, the last time round, it was deficient of several very noisy Brexiteers. So they put in Lady Fox of Revolutionary Communist Party fame and uh, Baroness Kate Hoey and others in order to kind of balance that one out uh, and so on. In the meantime, we still have, as the Sunday Times revealed to us uh, exclusively recently, we still have all these hereditary, hereditaries in the uh, in the Lords. There are, so it is still the pattern that significant donors to political parties will quite often get to be the Lords or people who are in some way kind of convenient. And how else did we imagine it was happening? We know they're not being elected uh, and so on, and they're not being appointed by some kind of people's ballot or some kind of, uh, some kind of lottery system as might occur in, in some places. In other words, what I'm saying is that influence peddling is actually a very, very big part of our informal system. Uh, actually. Yeah. And that's where the whole kind of public school thing kicks in, really, in my opinion. Not that it is kind of structurally like that, but that it is informally like that, which is, oh, you know, I just happen to have, I have Rishi's number, I'll just give him a call, see if he can give us a whole load of money. And then you think to yourself, 
I'm a business person, maybe, maybe a small business person or somebody who needs some money. Can I text the Chancellor and get an answer out of him and get him to say, I'll push my colleagues? No, you can't. Not a chance. No, no matter, you know, especially not if you went to Holloway County Comprehensive. Um, Arthur, uh, David just mentioned the ACOBA Committee watchdog, um, which has long been criticised for being toothless. Um, and it's headed by former Tory MP Eric Pickles, who seems to agree that it doesn't have enough powers. Where, what would be a sort of starting point expanding its powers? I mean, apart from obviously the government uh, is always ready to start another inquiry. Um, but in terms of actually doing things, what would you, what would you make your priorities be? The, the thing to understand is that it, it it's not just toothless, it's sort of gumless and mouthless. It, it's, a, it's a minute little collection of, uh, you know, one or two retired politicians and an extremely small secretariat. So it has almost no resources. And the second thing is that actually... Uh, the way it works, people are supposed to self-refer. I, mean, I know this. I, I was a civil servant. I left and, and took a private sector job, albeit one that wasn't politically sensitive. Uh, but it's your individual responsibility to go through a little checklist and decide whether or not there might possibly be a question and then present yourself to the ACOBA committee. And so if you look at the numbers of senior civil servants who've left, gone into the private sector, versus the number of cases they've taken. It's a tiny fraction. So basically, you know, if the government cares remotely about these issues, you just have to put a bit of resource into it. Or you say this is something that should be, you know, should be the responsibility of a a little unit of, you know, the cabinet office or something where the resource already exists. And that's even before you get to the question of, well, should there be sanctions? You know, should you be able to deny someone the right to take a certain job? I think famously George Osborne, uh, was told he shouldn't take various jobs, and All he just of them. took them anyway. Simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Gordon Brown is calling uh, for the rules to to expand the sort of two-year limit after someone leaving government, uh, that David referred to, to five. Do you think that would help a lot? In principle, it sounds like a good idea. But basically, it's very easy for people to bury the stuff they're doing. Part of the problem here is that we seem to have very, very poor disclosure systems so if if you say there's a five-year moratorium, I don't believe that most of our politicians will spend five years sitting on their hands or, you know, working in voluntary organisations and soup kitchens. I think they'll find ways to get very rich in a manner which is completely opaque. So I think what we need is is much firmer regulatory focus, particularly on holders of public office. And, and that if that has to be backed up by law rather than just by the idea of sort of gentlemen behaving well, then so be it. Yes, I mean, in the, in the States, I mean, the political system is very different. Um, and of course, cabinet members are not, uh, you know, they're not taken from Congress. They're often appointees, uh, often from the private sector. I mean, what kind of barriers are there there or, or, or sort of checks on uh, people that want to get rich out of their um, government positions? That's a good question. Um, it feels like there's not as much of a very like clear, drawn out place for them. Whereas in the U.S., like when a president leaves office, for example, you know they go and build their presidential library. Maybe they, you know, uh, they they give some speeches, uh, write their memoirs. Paul Bruce they, Springsteen. Exactly. If you're Obama, you'll write two <laughs> two big books instead of just the one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine this is admittedly not something I know a lot about, but, you know, there's certainly lobbyists. And I think that's more of like com- a commonly like accepted part of our political life in the U.S. 
but you know the extent to which um, <laughs> you have corporations and stuff texting lawmakers and stuff. I, I don't know that mm. that's kind of something that we regularly think about. Well, talking about here, the pandemic has made Rishi Sunak the most popular chancellor in decades. But there's these texts, obviously, that he chose to sort of release himself, which embroil him in in this issue. He's been summoned for a select committee to give evidence. How wounding do you think this could be for for his reputation? I mean, as far as like, you know, potentially losing his job. I mean, I think we already know that this government doesn't seem to mind too much if someone's found to break the ministerial <laughs> code uh, or the ministerial code. So, you know, in that respect, I don't necessarily think, you know, his job is on the line. Um, but, but I mean, I think, I think it is bad. And I mean, it, it's... It does say quite a lot if you're like one part of your defense is like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I got the text, but, you know, I, I ultimately, you know, rejected the, the proposal. I mean, it, I, I think that's something I see that ultimately, you know, the requests from Greensill were turned down. But, you know, I don't think that's that's the problem. Obviously, if, if Greensill's um, requests were accepted, I think that would have just taken, you know, the story to just another level. But I think the problem is that this was a way for a company to get where they wanted to be. Um, and that looks pretty bad. So yeah, I'm, I'm afraid he will not be remembered for Eat Out to Help Out anymore. Well, that's a very I mean, actually, Eat Out to Help Out is a very good case in point, because Eat Out to Help Out probably played a significant role in the second wave um, of the infection here in Britain. Rishi Sunak is got a reputation of being a popular chancellor because he gave lots of people lots of money at a time when they needed it. I am not at all clear that if there's an inquiry, for example, into the course of the pandemic, his intervention in September, when he uh, helped Johnson to host a, a kind of online webinar with the some of the major COVID deniers, effective scientific COVID deniers in the country, which resulted in that disastrous pre-Christmas uh, policy, won't be seen as having killed tens of thousands of Britons. And I'm not even joking about this. It's not some kind of, you know, semi-Trotsky's rant on my part. I mean, that's pretty much what happened because he wanted to get the economy uh, running again. The difficulties which the country faces economically in the period when we have come out, the the government's going to get terrific kudos for the vaccination program and for the simple fact that we're coming out. And that will last for some time. After that, we begin to hit the problems, and they are big problems. Well, I mean, you say that there's all these kind of real sort of challenges ahead, but there's also this, I suppose, this impression of of, of scandal at the moment. And PMQ's Keir Starmer said it was the tip of the iceberg and cronyism and marked the return of Tory sleaze. Now, leaving aside the issue of whether Tory sleaze uh, ever really went away, this was a really fruitful line of attack for Tony Blair in the 90s. Do you think that this could be, because because I, mean, I suppose Labour have been flailing a bit, looking for a line of attack. Do you think that this could become a really a really strong one that will resonate with the public, the, the, the idea of corruption and cronyism and an old boys network? The difficulty is it's quite easy for it to become a kind a thing which actually is painted on all politicians at all times. That's the, that's really the problem with it. So I, I mean, I think, for for example, most people believe that Boris Johnson is an inveterate liar. I think they probably believe that and think Paul Polling would probably show that, but that they don't care partially because they think 
most politicians are inveterate liars, uh, and that at least he's a personable inveterate liar, um, uh, essentially. Uh, and that is and that is a problem with op- for oppositions when characterising governments in this particular way, which is that actually the mud sticks to everybody, it just kind of uh, uh, flings around the place. Um, the other thing is that Tory sleeves, if you remember going back, although there was cash for questions, a lot of it was about sex. And that's and, and sex sleaze is the kind of sleaze people are really interested in, but they don't necessarily condemn you for it. Last week, Joe Biden signaled his plans to end America's longest war by removing U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September. Um, Yasmin, America went into Afghanistan in the aftermath of 9-11 20 years ago because the Taliban were sheltering Osama bin Laden. Why are troops still there today? What is their mission? See, that's the thing. I don't actually think anyone knew. I think if you were to ask kind of the average American, or indeed even, you know, there was a great piece in The Atlantic recently, I'll just tout it about this very issue. Some of the troops that were based there, you know, I don't think there was a clear idea of what the US was doing there. You know, like, are we nation building? Are we, quote unquote, nation building? Are we engaging in counterterrorism? You know, are we propping up the Afghan government for a few years? Are we maintaining this stalemate? I mean, I think the fact that there wasn't this clear vision or end goal was was part of the problem um, and, and kind of the reason that this decision was ultimately taken. And are there any aspects of the mission in Afghanistan that, that can be deemed a success? Gosh, I mean, we're talking about two decades <laughs> of, of uh, four presidents, you know, 2,400 fatalities, U.S. fatalities, uh, tens of thousands of injuries. I think passing historical judgments on, on America's war in Afghanistan is, is probably something that's best deferred to the experts. Um, but something that I've been thinking a lot about um, is something that Elliot Cohen of Johns Hopkins had written for us, um, in which he was kind of talking about the hundreds of thousands of Afghans, you know, who acted as interpreters, helicopter pilots, school teachers, bureaucrats, these people who threw in their lot with the U.S. and how, you know, America kind of owes them something. And, you know, the decisions that that it takes, hopefully, kind of as as troops wind down there um, mm. to, to, you know, to do as we did with Vietnamese refugees um, and to effectively save their lives, I, I think is something that I'm certainly going to be watching out for. Um, notably, Biden actually opposed efforts to evacuate the tens of thousands of South Vietnamese after the U.S.'s withdrawal from the country in 1973. And thankfully, the U.S. did do that. And now, you know, those refugees and their descendants are American citizens. But I think um, Biden has a chance here to really kind of learn from that mistake when it comes to the Afghans who worked with the U.S., along with their family members. Um, and I hope he does. And, and we're going to move on to, to the implications for Afghanistan, but I just wanted to ask about domestic politics. You know, the, the American public does seem very war-weary, you know, and that's reflected in the Republicans as well as the Democrats because Trump, Trump tapped into opposition to military intervention as well. So is this likely to be, I mean, I'm not sure what the polls are saying at the moment, a you know, broadly popular move at home that people do, do just want to get out? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, but I don't know if it's popular because that would have to imply that people had a position. And I think what I've seen from the polls is that there's a significant degree of ambivalence when it comes to the question of Afghanistan. It's just not something that I think was high on Americans' radars, most certainly even mm. indeed their foreign policy radar. I, I did see some polls of veterans and military families, and I think full withdrawal from Afghanistan was pretty, there's pretty high support among, among those communities. Um, but I think the 
the only main voice that I've heard that was really pro-keeping even a small uh, counterterrorism force there is uh, the Department of Defense. They're the only ones that really kind of, I think, had a a strong position against this move. Arthur, the US-backed government in Kabul aren't happy about the removal of troops. Um, and David Sedney, a former Pentagon official under Obama, described it as strategically stupid, a humanitarian disaster and morally reprehensible. What are the dangers, do you think, for Afghanistan and, and the wider region? What's, what's in the cons column here? I mean, I come to this from having spent more than a year living in a forward operating base in Helmand province. And throughout that time, I didn't see any progress, and that was at the point when the uh, you know the NATO presence was at its height. So we had um, more than ten thousand British troops, more than a hundred thousand foreign troops in the country. What year would this be? Uh, I was there in sort of twenty ten eleven, and and that was that was the surge. You know that was Obama's surge. At that time, there were you know there was huge ambition. Like I say, more than a hundred thousand NATO troops almost limitless resources being poured in. And over time, that has dropped back down a long way. But the answer to your question is, you know, the the worst case scenario is clearly that uh, the Taliban regains power, manages to topple the government in Kabul, and you return to sort of status quo ante 1996 onwards, which was the context in which bin Laden was able to have a sort of um, secure Mm. base for al-Qaeda. I don't think anyone believes that that's a realistic outcome. So therefore, you have to ask yourself, well, what is it uh, that we want to happen or that we want not to happen? So, If you look at the history of Afghanistan, whether in its period of independence as a monarchy, the period of Soviet control, the period of civil war after that, no central government in Kabul has ever managed to exert its influence and power over the provinces. And it's no different in, in the present day. And for as long as people try to impose that ambition on Afghanistan, I think they'll be met with failure. David, it's 20 years uh, since the invasion of Afghanistan. It's 18 since the invasion of Iraq. And we're in a very, America is in a very different political place. I think Britain is as well. When do you think that that sort of neoconservative project of encouraging democracy around the world by force, if necessary, run out of steam? Uh, well, firstly, I don't think neoconservative is a useful phrase at all, uh, not particularly, because actually this is a mixture of motivations, uh, of which what we call humanitarian intervention is one, uh, kind of linked to the notions of the right to protect. You shouldn't forget that quite a significant part of the psychology of this emerged out of the Rwandan genocide and the Bosnian civil war and the Srebrenica genocide, and the fact that people sat by and watch these things happen and decided they shouldn't do it again. And then there was the problem of 9-11 and the genuine problem that was then seen of the possibility of somebody like Osama bin Laden getting weapons of mass destruction and so on. So you had to stop states failing because if states failed, then in that case, they became the sort of place where this kind of thing should happen and so on. Significantly, people have lost the reasoning as to why these things occurred in the way in which they did and why people took some of the positions and made some of the assumptions that they did. So the thing about Afghanistan has been for a very long time is whether or not if you did 
withdraw precipitately, what you would have is a situation whereby effectively the Taliban took control of the country again. And you were faced not just with the possibility that it would once more become a haven, if you like, but that it would also, you would also have to watch the spectacle of the football field in Kabul, which was a place where the Taliban used to execute people, including women, which is now a place where you play football, reverting to that original use. In other words, you'd have to watch it uh, on television and know that you had caused it. And there still isn't an answer to that particular conundrum, as far as I can see. I can only imagine that the Biden administration believes that the Taliban are either so reformed that they wouldn't do that again, or more likely they think they simply don't actually have the power to take over the major cities in Afghanistan anymore, which is a punt that I can't really assess. But the one thing that is absolutely true, and it's more true of Iraq, really, than it is of Afghanistan, although um, uh, Britain lost more troops in Afghanistan than in Iraq, is that what happened in Iraq formed such a kind of uh, trauma, traumatic background in, in, in Western politics, that when it came to Barack Obama's decision about whether to take action against Syria in 2013, or indeed Ed Miliband's decision not to back the Cameron government, and the Cameron government's then loss, which preceded Obama's decision not to enforce his red lines, then in that case you could argue that a significant amount of what has happened in Syria since then is actually down to the fear of intervening and Eventually, of course, you had to because of ISIS and so on. Do you think this is, though, just an inevitable response um, to what has gone wrong? Because you could say, for example, that, that, that sort of Tony Blair's I suppose, optimism about Afghanistan and Iraq um, stemmed from, you know, the relative successes uh, in interventions in Kosovo, in Sierra Leone. And now you can look at Iraq is one case, Afghanistan is another that just went on and on and on and on. Libya was one where they decided, the West decided to remove Gaddafi, but then not sort of stay in there, not make the Afghanistan mistake. But then that became its own sort of kind of chaos. Is it just that there are so many, that there are so many different approaches have been tried and, and sort of failed that, the, the any appetite for, I mean, you're right, there's, there's, it's not just neoconservatism, there's humanitarian intervention, which is a very different thing, which kind of merges in places, but a very different sort of discipline, you know, traditions. But do you think that that has just, all the appetite for that has just has just what, gone? What, well, appetite for what, Dorian, is, is, is my question. Well, I doing, mean, I mean, for, for, for intervention, if you try to pitch a humanitarian intervention now. What's our appetite for non-intervention? I mean, what's our appetite for the consequences of non-intervention, which is significantly what happened in Syria? Do we have a big appetite? Arguably, what happened in in the Syrian civil war destabilised Western politics and the politics. I mean, a question, is there a Brexit without the refugee crisis of 2015? for example. Uh, you know, historians will enjoy that one in, uh, in 25, 35, 45 years. So every single course of action or inaction has consequences. Now, you can argue, well, at least we're not responsible for it if we don't go in. But that is why I started this with the Rwandan genocide. That's not how it felt when we watched the mm. uh, the, the, the death. I remember Fergal Keane's report from Rwanda, where he came to places a week after people had been massacred there. And you just felt an absolute sense of crying shame. Now, there are people, and you know, I, I know one or two writers who say, you just have to take that one on the chin. And then you think about, but you then you, you, you have what you call the kind of Auschwitz uh, conundrum, which is, do you stand by? Or do you create a refugee policy which says, yes, we understand that this is going to lead to a lot of refugees, we'll take them all. 
I mean, isn't there a risk, David, that you're going to have the refugees anyway? The thought that if you haven't intervened, then then that that would stave off a refugee crisis. I'm not, I'm not sure it, you know, that the evidence supports. I suppose that. Libya would be the counterexample, that wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, hold on. We didn't stay in Libya. We ensured that Gaddafi went, and then we did pretty much not very much at all. Um, you know, there wasn't any nation building in Libya because 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 by then nation building had gone out of out of fashion. Um, what we said was we gave effectively we helped Libyans have themselves the space within which to decide what they wanted, and obviously what they decided was catastrophic. That's been the argument that has been uh, applied to applied to Libya, and other people say, well, we shouldn't have done it. We would have been better off. With what? With Gaddafi continuing in the Benghazi, Hecatomb, and so on. There aren't any easy answers in this, and all Mm. of them lead to a series of kind of moral conundrums. And the idea that somehow you've reached the answer by saying you're pulling your troops out, well, the answer is you haven't. So one of the things I have to say that irritates me beyond uh, any kind of measure is when people say this ends America's longest war. It doesn't end the war. It doesn't. It just ends the bit where American troops were there. It ends America's war. (laughs) Well, and actually, it probably doesn't even do that. It's solipsistic in a kind of really, in a really kind of, you know, lazy, lazy way, I think. Well, well, finally, this withdrawal from Afghanistan coincides with a a new toughness with Russia, um, in contrast to Trump, an end to support for the Saudi campaign in Yemen. Do you think this adds up to a coherent Biden foreign policy in your eyes? Do Do you think that he has a a vision there of America's place in the world? I honestly don't know. Um, I, 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 the Afghan withdrawal was in some ways rather a surprise to me because it wasn't what the Allies had particularly wanted. I mean, as was made clear uh, in Britain's uh, just afterwards. And we had thought that one of the hallmarks of the Biden approach was actually that he was going to consult with allies uh, and so on. But I suppose consulting with allies is not the same as doing what your allies want you to do. And that's maybe an important lesson about even a Biden White House uh, uh, going forward, because he seemed to have, if you like, a kind of more predictable pattern of response. But then there were elements of what Biden was saying within the Obama, you know, of that kind of withdrawalism within the Obama White House. The other thing that we should be, you know, thinking about in this context is whether uh, Biden and others also mean the things that they have also said about protecting American jobs and what the long-term impact of that is going to be, since they also seem to want to eschew parts of, if you like, the kind of Clintonian globalised package from which you could argue we in Britain have partially benefited. Now, voters in Greenland have drastically swung left, kicking out the region's leading party since 1979. It was a decisive rejection of the proposed rare earth minerals mine in Kavanfjeld. Uh, he said confidently, a vital global <laughs> source of the elements needed for electrification from wind turbines to weapon systems. But stalling the project poses a big challenge to Western strategic and economic interests and exposes tricky environmental trade-offs. Dr. Dwayne Ryan Menezes is founder and MD of the Polar Research and Policy Initiative. Hello, my name is Dwayne Menezes. I'm the founder and managing director of Polar Research and Policy Initiative, focusing on Arctic, Nordic, North Atlantic issues. Greenland, as you know, is a, is a rather large Arctic island, perhaps the size of Saudi Arabia, a little bit larger than Saudi Arabia, and two-thirds the size of India. 
But in this very large Arctic island, we actually have only about 56,000 people who live there. Greenland sits on some of the world's largest resources of rare earths and other critical minerals that are going to be increasingly vital to the rest of the world as we transition to a low-carbon economy. Well, Quanafield Project is perhaps the most hyped project in Greenland. Uh, Greenland sits in vast reserves of rare earth elements. These reserves in the south of Greenland comprise some of the largest deposits of untapped rare earth in the world. There are radioactive elements mixed in with the REE, which is the rare earth elements. So there's uranium and thorium mixed in. This land in which this project sits is potentially the only arable part of the country. Now, as you can imagine, in a country dominated by a very large ice cap in the middle, arable land does not come easy. And here in Greenland, uh, there is agriculture and husbandry and a local community that thrives in this particular part of the country. So the fact that this mining project could go ahead and cause, due to uranium mining, could cause radioactive waste that could then, and toxic waste, that could then have an impact in the local community in what is quite fragile an environment. That is where the concern arises. The EU depends on China for about 98% of its rare earth supply. The US depends on China for about 80% of its rare earth supply. Now, Greenland alone can meet around a quarter of global demand well into the future. This is what makes Greenland so strategically important. Rare earth reserves are as important to the 21st century as oil was to the 20th. Rare earths are the building blocks of the green energy revolution and sustainable transportation, making their way into solar panels, into wind turbines, into batteries, electric vehicles, everything the UK is prioritising at the moment. And then finally, rare earths are also the industrial gold where the high-tech sector is concerned. So whether you're using an iPhone or an iPod, an LED screen, you're thinking about microwave filters or, su- or superconductors, a digital camera lens, all of which uses rare earth elements. This is why rare earth elements are so fundamentally important to our everyday lives in the 21st century and why it is absolutely important that we in the West are not completely dependent on China. When we think about mining in the Arctic, it is always the rest of the world telling people in the Arctic what they should do. It is always big environmental groups telling people in the Arctic they should not go in for development or celebrating when they don't. It is always big business groups that want development in the Arctic and celebrate when indigenous and local communities do opt for development in the Arctic. But we need to realise this debate is not healthy. What happens in the Arctic is not really what people sitting in London or the comforts of San Francisco should be thinking about. Or, I mean, they should be thinking about, but not necessarily dictating what indigenous people or local communities in the Arctic should be thinking or should be doing or should be deciding. These debates really need to be had by local communities. It is their voices that need to be heard, their choices that need to be considered. Finally, Emerald Fennel's directorial debut, Promising Young Woman, has already won several awards, including two BAFTAs. It's up for five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Actress for Carrie Mulligan. Uh, While trying to avoid spoilers, it's the story of a woman who seeks creative revenge for the rape of a friend when she was at college. It hits a lot of hot buttons around issues of sexual assault, toxic masculinity and institutional failures, It's not universally admired. While The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw called it a playfully provocative and ingenious rape-revenge satire, Stephanie Zaharek at Time magazine said it was just lip-gloss misanthropy packaged as feminist manifesto. 
Yasmin, you don't have to choose from options A or B. Um, <laughs> but what did you make of this movie? I really liked it. I mean, I thought it was provocative and just really intense at times. I mean, again, with, without giving spoilers, um, the first scene, I was just kind of tied up in knots. I was so uncomfortable um, throughout all of it and just really wanted it to stop. But, um, you know, it, it kind of, I think that's part of the point. I think that, you know, a lot of these issues, you know, need to make people uncomfortable. And if this film gets people to kind of particularly um, those like the the men that, that we saw, the quote unquote nice guys. I mean, I think the biggest lesson from the film is that if you have to call yourself a nice guy, you're probably not that nice. Um, or if you have to get, kind of constantly reaffirm it, you're probably not that nice. Um, but yeah, you know, I think it. I, I think it was uncomfortable to agree to a degree that's probably necessary. Uh, and on necessary TV, we've had. You know, I said me too, too. It's obviously a much sort of bigger umbrella, and obviously it's it, it, in all kinds of um, walks of life. But in in terms of this sort of broad subject, we've seen on TV. I may destroy you. Unbelievable. Um, with their own different angles on this. So, I mean, I suppose this is the first really high-profile film that does it, so therefore has to kind of carry the weight of of that issue. But do you think it's sort of, you need, would you give it the sort of space to, okay, this is like one slant, this is one approach, but there are lots of other approaches which are probably going to come come out later. So let's not sort of, you know, judge this too harshly on whether it kind of does the whole enormous issue justice. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think with an issue as big as this, um, you need multiple multiple avenues. you got to meet people where they're at with the subject as well, too. I mean, some people are going to, for, for a lot of people, you know, this film is going to reach a lot of people. I thought the, the, the cast was just incredibly impressive in terms of just, you know, the high profile people uh, behind it. I mean, I, I love seeing like Liver and Cox, for example. You know, just I it was really, you know, it was kind of great to see a lot of these big name actors collaborating on a project that is just so timely. And as you say, talking about these sensitive issues, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't think this is the be all end all film when it comes to discussing issues as difficult mm. as, you know, sexual assault, toxic masculinity, all those things. I think there are going to be hopefully many more. And I think there should be, I think that's where people have conversations and that's hopefully where if people recognize these behaviors and attitudes, either in themselves or in people they know, then hopefully it pro- prompts some, some reflection. Arthur, this was described quite widely as a comedy thriller. I didn't find it very funny. So that may be a, uh, that may be a problem with the billing rather than the filmmakers themselves. What did you find? What, sort of, what did you make of the tone it struck? Well, I certainly didn't find it funny at all. Like Yasmin, the, the early parts um, where I, I don't think it's, it's giving it much away to talk about the, the way that she sort of um, goes to bars and, and sort of ensnares these toxic men and then confronts them with their behaviour incredibly uncomfortable to watch but in a way that was you know it was groundbreaking I'd not sort of thought of that kind of issue in in cinematic terms so I I, you know it was a bit like sort of watching Lolita or something it was extremely uncomfortable but made you think a lot but I have to say really that my problem with it was that actually I just found it to be a slightly sort of incoherent film it seemed like three movies in one there's the first phase which is this very kind of toe curling uncomfortable bit there's a sort of charming rom-com in the middle. And then there's a weird kind of revenge murder story at the end. And, and um, 
you know, I, I just wasn't sure what I was watching. Yeah, I, I will say there, I didn't really like the ending. Like, I I get why they, they... Which we will not explain, by the way. We, yeah, I will not explain, but I, yeah, I was, I kind of found myself quite disappointed. And I think for, for kind of the reasons uh, that were just described, like, I think, you know, I had this idea of what the film was when I was watching it. And then it was just a shift. And I was like, oh, wait. David, we're in a sort of era at the moment where there's quite a few movies, including on the Best Picture slate, um, tackling political issues of Judas and the Black Messiah and the Trial of the Chicago 7. And then you've got other movies like Nomadland being criticised for not being political enough. Um, what Do you think this is this qualifies as a message movie? And if so, does it, does it work in getting the message across? Well, it's really funny but in one way. It's... 32 years since Jodie Foster won an Oscar for The Accused. It's quite possible that at least two of you have never seen that movie um, uh, because it's now old. It uh, it was a movie about a gang rape and the prosecution of a gang rape, which actually has some crossovers to at least one of the scenes in this uh, in this film. And I was just thinking about how much more of a powerful film that was. I mean, and I just I don't think it's just my age because of the clarity with which it set about what it was trying to do and the simplicity, if you like, of the story. Um, but the thing that's depressing, doesn't matter whether you can compare the movies or not, is that essentially, in a slightly updated way, um, this, this new film was simply doing what The Accused did 33 years ago, and we're still in the same place. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, the person I most kind of, you know, could relate to in this movie is the father because he's kind of my age. Uh, I relate to nearly none of the other people in the film. Uh, and I don't mean that's because their issues don't exist. I'm t- I've just moved beyond the stage of understanding that world and how it works. But in so far as it was telling you, um, uh, t- talking about an issue, it seemed to be the same issue broadly as it was 33 years ago. It didn't seem to have moved on. So the first thing I take from it is the depressing continuity, despite all the advances we've made on this, on if you like, the sexual war that still exists that men by and large uh, are foist upon women. Uh, and the other thing which you'll also see is some of the ambivalence amongst some of the women who actually are victims of it, like the friend who she goes, the former friend she goes to fairly early in the movie, who actually in some ways is the most interesting person in it because she's the person who laughs it off at the time, though a woman, uh, and can't see the significance of it. Now, you ask in general about uh, about political movies. I think there is more of a kind of desire for message movies and so on. But my own preference is for movies whose message you, in a sense, have to work out for yourself, that I get you to do some work. A, a movie like Minari, you can say it's a soft kind of gentle film, but it also raises all kinds of questions about how new groups of people adapt to a majority society that is not theirs the depression uh, sometimes that they feel, the disappointments that they feel, and how they internalise or externalise those disappointments. Without So I, though I haven't seen Nomadland, I very much suspect that Nomadland is a film I would like from a political point of view. Well, I have a bit of a problem sometimes with didacticism, and I suppose seeing this only a few months after I May Destroy You, which is a, um, about different kinds of abuse... And is a lot less didactic and even gives, I think, maybe, can I, can we spoil I May Destroy You because it's been out so long? It gives you different options. It gives you different avenues and talks also a lot about sort of recovery. And if not forgiveness, and an idea of moving on. 
And I felt here maybe that the, 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 the film, very, it's, it so much endorses Carrie Mulligan's character's sort of punitive view. And obviously with the men, you, you, you sort of don't, you know, it's not like you feel sorry for the men. But it did feel that there was very much kind of this person is correct um, at each turn. And that there were these very kind of these bits. Of, okay, now we have to talk about the institutional failures at the college. Now we have to talk about the institutional failures in the law. And it, there was a strange kind of kind of fizzy pop energy to the way the film looks and sounds and moves, and yet also a sense that that um there were definitely I was definitely being given lessons, and I'm not I don't know whether those sort of added up because one does not object to lessons in a Ken Loach film. I do, but then you're not getting the <laughs> well, no, but I mean you know what you're getting there, but yeah. to sort of put that into the format of a kind of snazzy revenge thriller. Um, I don't know. I suppose Arthur says there's you know, sort of three movies in one. I certainly felt that there were perhaps like the message and the tone to me didn't converge. Throughout, it, it really did feel like kind of, you know, we, we very clearly knew who the bad guys were. And, and with the exception of perhaps the, I don't, I don't want to give spoilers, so cut this out if it is, but like with the exception of the one curveball kind of in the middle, you know, you, you had a very clear idea of who was, who was in the right and who was in the wrong. And, but, but, you know, I thought generally, even if as I, as I was watching the film, some of the behaviors of the guy I was watching, I was like, okay, thankfully I've never encountered anyone like quite that obscenely bad. I think kind of the understanding that like what the film was getting at is that there, there are these like, you know, quote unquote, nice people who, you know, for all intents and purposes are, you know, think they're doing the right thing at the time or think that they're, you know, they've taken the right decision or like, you know, trying to be fair, like with the school, you know, trying to listen to both, both sides. Um, and, and just kind of reckoning with the fact that, you know, sometimes that that's not, it's not as clear cut as, as perhaps people seem to think. We've come to the end of this week's bunker. And as usual, we're going to ask the panel for their escape routes and politics. What are the TV films, books, or miscellaneous delights that are taking their minds off politics? Arthur, what have you enjoyed? Well, I was on holiday last week, which was wonderful, and um, I found myself uh, reading um, some ancient Len Dayton spy novels, and and they're just brilliant. This is the uh, Game, Set and Match trilogy, uh, just brilliant kind of classic thrillers, and, and I can't understand why we don't sort of hear more about them these days. Brilliant. David? In this sort of last few years, I've become really interested because something my, my, my wife got me into in, in, in art and in art provenance and in great art and so on. And there really are some terrific documentaries. There are some terrific podcasts. Uh, there are some great websites about art and looking at paintings mostly, not entirely, but looking at paintings mostly. And because I'd really got into that in the period before lockdown, what this allowed you to do was to tr to try and zero in on the thing itself more closely and see it because you can with you know the, ma the magic of uh, computerization and so on and website in a way that uh, and listen to people discussing it in a way that I haven't before so actually I've probably spent more of my time doing that than I have thinking about politics in the first place wonderful uh, yasmin I don't know if this is quite an escape route, but it's Ramadan. So <laughs> I've, um, I've been completely distracted by everything. But yes, yeah, so I've been, you know, kind of just focused on, I think all the, I feel like Ramadan is, is a great kind of moment to sort of pause 
and kind of reflect and, and take a bit of time to, you know, focus on the things that you might neglect throughout the year, whether it's kind of prayer or spirituality or charity, things like that. So I've, I've tried to, you know, basically spend my evenings focusing on that and cooking delicious food to break my fast with. And yeah, less on like doom scrolling. Though I must say the TikTok algorithm must have clocked that I'm Muslim straight away because my whole TikTok for you page is just like Ramadan, Ramadan, Ramadan (laughs) stuff. And they're hilarious. Um, So if if you're not Muslim or not fasting or whatever, I would encourage you to just look up Ramadan on TikTok because there are some great content there. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Um, (laughs) Mine, unfortunately, is incredibly trivial. I was going to suggest, I was really going to suggest A Touch of Cloth, which is, uh, we rewatched that as Charlie Brooker's um, sort of comedy version of cop shows, which is better than almost all serious cop shows um, and has uh, Adrian Dunbar from Line of Duty in it being deliberately funny as opposed to unintentionally funny as he is in Line of Duty. But the mention of Len Dayton made me remember that when I was on holiday last week with my kids, we looked up James Patterson's uh, bibliography to see how many books he'd written, which is over 200. Um, And in terms of titles, uh, the titles are remarkable. There's the, uh, so I recommend going to his bibliography Wikipedia page uh, for his Alex Cross series, where he starts with cross, double cross, cross country. I, Alex Cross, cross fire. Merry Christmas, Alex Cross. Cross my heart, hope to die. Cross justice, which isn't even a phrase. Cross the line, the people versus Alex Cross, deadly cross, crisscross, and it's still going. (laughs) <laughs> and, and you got hasn't there, isn't there one called i'm very cross <laughs> i'm very cross i think that's the next one i just want to know at what point he throws up his hands and goes i've done all the cross puns now oh, um God. but i just have to admire somebody that just bangs out um at least one book a year with increasingly absurd titles and that's the end of this week's bunker thanks so much to arthur snell thank you yasmin sahan thanks for having me and our special guest david aronovich Oh, it's nice to be special. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We will be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. So follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. And if you enjoy the show, you can back the Bunker on Patreon to see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Backers get a salute at the end of the show, and here are some now. So hello and very best wishes from me to Anna Barnett, Jan Niemeyer and Paul Thornton. It's a big thanks from me to Pascal Olivery, Dominic Mitchell and Benedict James. And finally, thanks from me to Ant Short, Linux Twit and Chris Whiffin. Take care and we'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Yasmin Saran and Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofranievich. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Oh, 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 o